Hi, this is Rusty Reno with First Names Magazine, and this is the editor's desk where we talk with authors of recent articles in First Things Magazine, and I'm just so pleased to have with me Father Timothy Kusick, who teaches moral theology at St. Vincent de Paul Regional Seminary, and we're going to talk about his essay in the March 2022 issue on priestly poverty. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. So in my experience, many Catholics, and certainly all Protestants, believe that every Catholic priest has taken a vow of poverty, but that turns out not to be true. No, it's not. Um, And there's a distinction that we make uh, between uh, parish priests, diocesan priests, or secular priests. So that's one category. That always baffles people. Wait a minute. How can you be a secular priest? (laughs) Right. (laughs) I thought you are very religious. Um, Well, it's opposed to those priests who belong to religious communities, uh, just such as the the Benedictine monks, the Franciscan friars, or the Jesuits. Um, And those who are in those particular communities follow what are called the evangelical councils uh, from the gospel uh, of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And so they take those vows. Uh, Parish priests, on the other hand, make promises of celibacy uh, and obedience to their bishop, uh, but they have not been required to take any kind of vow of poverty. Uh, When you go through seminary, you're encouraged to live a simple life, uh, but that can be interpreted in many different ways. Uh, But so it's only those are called the religious priests um, who actually take those vows. The occasion of your your piece well the the horizon of the piece is the is the um loss of trust widespread having to do with the clerical sex abuse scandals but as you explain in your piece really it was the mccarrick revelation and by the way i should say i share with you the same sort of gut punch feeling when the news broke about him uh but that that really illuminated you for you the relationship between lust, if you will, and greed. You know, what what is the hidden role of greed in all this in this clerical abuse business? Well, it's this notion that we're controlled by our passions, really. Uh, that the uh, we we don't have a. a a sense of a discipline concerning our desires in general. And so uh, a a lack of discipline in terms of desire for material goods uh, can also be linked, um, you know, to uh, a desire of, uh, for physical pleasure, I would say. Um, This notion of uh, temperance uh, really is what joins them, the the virtue of temperance, uh, being able to kind of have an appropriate uh, relationship with material goods, with food, with drink, uh, with what are called the, you know, the pleasures of the touch when, when this particular virtue is, is discussed. And so I just started to see that, you know, we can get to a point where we just, in our prayer life and our spiritual life, um, do not actually have any sense of self-control. And I think it can spill over into, into these different areas. So, you know, part of the McCarrick revelation is that these goings-ons, these untoward goings-ons with seminarians took place at the beach house 
And that's a, that is this eyebrow raising notion. Ah, so the Archbishop of Newark has a, has a beach house as well as a Episcopal mansion. You draw attention to that, right? And it's it's something that I think really plays itself out in this notion of entitlement. Um, mm. So, for example, when when I was a a, a pastor. Um, you know, I'd often, when we would discuss budgetary matters in the, in, in the parish, I would say, we have to remember, this is not our money. This is all gift. And so we have to respect the fact that, you know, people have sacrificed to help us uh, do our work, uh, which is wonderful. And we try to do the best we can. But when that shifts into the sense of, you know, I, this is all mine. I can use it however I wish. And no matter how that might be viewed by others in terms of my priestly life, uh, you know, so I have this sense of, I, you know, I can afford all these luxuries. Um, so why not? Um, and I, I think that that can, you know, ha- be drawn from this sense of entitlement rather than recognizing uh, what we have as gift. You're drawing a connection between abuse of power, sexual abuse, and I suppose an abuse of of the largesse of of those who are who are giving to the church. And uh, I find that a very powerful insight that there is this connection. Um, and and, and I, I I suppose the notion of entitlement that does does actually cover quite a bit of it. Um, so there's been a countermeasure that you that you advocate and they're not just by the way for clergy <laughs> I, mean, I really it's, it's I, I read the piece as as a recommending a way of life for all of us but you speak of liberating austerity so how does austerity liberate so it's this sense of not being controlled by our desires and not being controlled by material goods, uh, to have that interior freedom uh, that, that comes from not having the sense of need, this, this craving that we often get uh, when we seek to, to fill up any interior emptiness uh, with material goods or, or with uh, a desire for uh, sexual relationship. Um, and you know this this weekend the gospel was about blessed are the poor and and uh, I, I know Bishop Barron has talked about this in terms of you know blessed are those who are not controlled by possessions um, and I, I think in this culture this consumer culture that we have um, you know we, we're convinced that no 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 I I need all these things and, and what happens then is that anytime I'm feeling um, distressed or uncomfortable or, or anxious, you know, it's like, oh, let me buy something. Right. Um, you know, and I mean, I, I have <laughs> this situation myself and it, it comes out in, well, I'll buy another book. And <laughs> before you know it, I have this library full of books that I can't really afford and don't have time to read. Uh, yeah, tell <laughs> me great about if it. I had time, for it. <laughs> but, uh, so yeah, so I think that there is a certain interior freedom that comes from saying I'm, I'm not controlled by by these external goods. Um, and in fact, in the document on priesthood from the Second Vatican Council, the notion of evangelical poverty for priests is put in the context of our relationship with created goods. Um, and to clarify, evangelical poverty, that's kind of a technical term in, in Catholic thought. That means 
voluntary poverty. So that means something that I have that I can in justice actually possess, I will I freely give up. Is that, a fair, is that a fair definition of evangelical poverty? Correct. Uh, that I am allowing myself to um, be a greater instrument for the proclamation of the gospel because I have relinquished these things. So I am, I am more open, I am more ready uh, to engage in ministry. Um, but also just take evangelical in the sense that in the gospels, we see that Jesus himself uh, and the apostles, you know, did not have very much um, that. So that we're actually following his example of the one who said, you know, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Um, and, you know, St. Paul talks about, you know, Christ became poor so that you might become rich. Um, and his poverty is, of course, exemplified above all on the cross when he was stripped of everything he could possibly claim as his own, his reputation, as well as the material goods, his friends, uh, and even the sense of abandonment, abandonment by God the Father. Yeah, well, let's drill down on the evangelical, because that's, that's an important part of your piece. There's a, there's a, a powerful witness you know, the two Beatitudes, the two, the Lucan version and the, uh, the one in the Gospel of Matthew. And the Gospel of Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit. And Luke is more direct. Blessed are the poor, full stop. And, and uh, but spiritual poverty, which is the disposition of not being attached to worldly things and having an openness and a trust in God's grace it's deepened and reinforced by material poverty, isn't it? I mean, I suppose that it's it's, it's certainly possible. Um, you know, uh, people often admire, I can't remember what the last Habsburg who died recently was a very modest man um, in spite of his both wealth and, and aristocratic position. But for most of us, <laughs> we do need a kind of visible, tangible, um, it's like an athlete has to actually go out and train. And the same thing is true for spiritual poverty. We have to train our spiritual poverty by embracing aspects of material poverty. Right. So there's an old line that, uh, you know, oh, yes, I'm, I'm poor as spirit, you know, and, you know, I may have a Lexus, but my Lexus doesn't own me, you know. So, um, <laughs> um, <laughs> so. Oh, by the way, uh, when it comes to the no one, no place to rest his head, uh, I, I had a Jesuit um, colleague when I taught at Creighton University, and he accumulated these offices. He had his departmental office, he had his Jesuit residence office, and he was running some program, third office. So my joke was, is that, you know, Father Hauser's interpretation of that passage is that it says that Jesus had no one place to rest his head. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's what that meant. Okay, so yeah. ex exegesis can yeah. always get us to a, a better place, I think. <laughs> <laughs> that brought some laughs from my colleagues at the department meeting when I brought that up. But to to your the notion of disciplining our souls, uh, you make an observation that um, ultimately it's, I mean, uh, possessions can serve as a, a spiritual illusion that we can control our fate. And if we store up enough treasure on earth, then we will somehow, I don't know, like not die or something. Exactly. It's this notion of um, I can be secure in myself. 
that I am, you know, I am autonomous, I am independent, and so I, I have no need of anyone. And unfortunately, the fact of death, you know, just puts that conception and sh- you know, and sh- and shatters it. Uh, and you know, this this sense of when you come to the point that you realize that you're actually dependent on God at every moment uh, for remaining in being, uh, you know, not in the sense of, you know, I'm, there's no value in myself, but the sense that I am constantly being gift the gift, being gift, given the gift of my being. I am constantly being given the opportunity of receiving uh, from created goods, from other people. Um, and so when, when we lose out that, that understanding of our dependence and try to, you know, kind of set ourselves up as, um, as completely autonomous, um, we're not living in the truth. Um, and we are distracting ourselves, you know, remember Pascal used to always talk about, you know, how much of what we do in our life is simply distracting ourselves mm-hmm. from the fact of our, our very kind of tenuous, uh, situation uh, yeah t.s Eliot in the four cortex captures that with his line distracted from distraction by distraction <laughs> and i think it's a very pascalian uh, moment in, in, in Eliot's poetry uh well i've thought i've come to see that jesus's statement that you cannot serve god and mammon is actually a gospel proclamation which is that if you are willing to serve God, then you will not be a slave of man. <laughs> and right, because the that faith is a is a it's a um, it's a big crowbar that can crowbar us out of our the rat race that often people often call it. And it's it points to something that I I often preach about, and that's everyone worships something. Uh, I would say even in some cases you could say even the most ardent atheist we're. we're atheist worships something because you worship what you're willing to sacrifice anything else for. Uh, and so I, I would say that there are even people of faith who, who don't realize that they've made an idol out of their work or an idol out of, out of their, out of their possessions. Uh, so, you know, Jesus is pointing to something very important here. It's like, where, where does your ultimate loyalty lie? Uh, what are you willing to offer yourself completely for? Um, so that's, if if we are saying that well piling up possessions is my goal in life you know what was that bumper sticker in the 80s you know the one who dies with the most toys wins mm. um you know it's like is that as is that all we can do uh or is there something more that we should be living for and i, I think sometimes we we sell ourselves short um and saying you know not recognizing how much more we are made for the thrust of the essay the background is the, your entry into the priesthood in a time of where the clerical scandals had really undermined um, at least the, the um, reputation of the priesthood, but certainly for many people, their ability to trust the church. And how, how, does, how does voluntary poverty in the clergy repair trust? What's your experience with that and your sense of how that, because I guess you said part of it is it's not about me. It's about being open to serving God. Poverty is a necessary form of detachment to make oneself available. 
But how does that sort of work itself out in the parish context? In a couple of ways. Uh, I, I remember I lived in Boston for a couple of years uh, in the mid 2000s. And I remember I was helping out of the parish there where uh, they were in place of the homily. I had to show the, the video for the archbishop's appeal, uh, his annual appeal. And, you know, people were still just in a terrible place uh, with the fallout. And even though uh, Cardinal Malley was already uh, stationed there, he was having difficulty. And I remember some parishioners afterwards telling me, Father, I support my parish, but I will never give a dime again to that annual appeal for the archdiocese. I just can't. I can't trust them. Uh, you know, so mm, that's think, a key word. Yes, trust. Mm. So, uh, so first of all, I think that if, if people see us living simple lives, not, not being lavish in expenditures, um, they'll say, you know, these priests, they're not out, you know, to see what they can get from me. Uh, they are actually here to serve me and I support them because I, I am grateful for their service. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm not out to get something. I, I am simply there to serve, responding to God's call and, you know, not trying to see how much I can profit from it. Uh, so that's the first point. Uh, you, you, uh, you raise another important issue as well. And that's simply that notion of availability, uh, that, you know, I'm not worried about the next time I can go have a nice meal at a restaurant. I am simply available. I, I mean, you know, I've had, I've had days, you know, in the parish or even here at the seminary where you get to the end of a long day and just ready to sit back and relax for a while. And then the call comes, you know, are you ready to do that? Um, and, you know, there have been times when I was tempted to say no, uh, but it's like, wait, what are you here for? And, you know, being able to go and be available to people, you know, that again is, is a way that through those relationships that that trust is engendered. Uh, and so this notion of poverty is, you know, not just the material aspect, but the spiritual aspect of saying, whatever I have is here to serve the mission. My experience is that the commitment to celibacy is read by really by our entire society and not just by people who go to church. It's read by our entire society as like, whoa, these guys are really committed. Because <laughs> it's a it's a visible sign of this inner intention of of uh, you know ultimately discipleship is the most important thing. And Certainly people would look at Franciscans wandering around in their, you know, outfits here in New York with their sandals. And I think a lot of New Yorkers see the same like, whoa, this is a serious business here. Uh, because most people cannot imagine celibacy as a discipline that they could adhere to. And actually, I think probably in our time, people can imagine even less uh, a kind of um, voluntary poverty. It's funny. Uh, um, Mammon, I think, is probably a more powerful um, uh, god than Eros, a more powerful idol. Because it's something everyone can share in, yes, no matter what your state of life is. Um, but first, many, I, I just want... Many people have been saved from the swinging life because of the expenditure. They can't bear the thought of, 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 uh, uh, of the expense. <laughs> also, it's lifelong. It doesn't moderate. Uh, you know, it's it's an interesting. Mammon's a funny 
the, the desert fathers were uh, had a lot of wisdom about the power of, of mammon. To the extent that uh, they would sometimes only work for bread, or even what work they did, they would undo at the end of the day. Uh, it was something to keep them occupied and focused on God rather than uh, trying to accumulate anything. Yeah, that's, uh, but that's an austerity I don't think I am <laughs> cut out for. Right, right. Uh, but I, um, well, first of all, celibacy, I just want to concur that, you know, my pastor growing up, um, the fact that he was celibate was part of the kind of aura that existed around the priesthood for me, uh, that he was that committed um, and that he wanted to give his life completely to uh, to the people and to the Lord. Um, and People, you know, it's it is a sacrifice, uh, and yet it's also a way of entering into relationship more deeply with your people. Uh, we we talk a lot about imitating the bridegroom, Jesus as the bridegroom of the church, and so I, you know, this notion of a I'm a a spiritual husband, uh, you know, towards my people. I and I must say, when as a pastor, you get that sense of you know this is my family, uh, and you know, what, what father would not want to sacrifice everything for his children? Um, and, you know, so that comes to, again back into this notion of poverty. It's like, yes, I, you know, for example, I mean, what, what if the parish is struggling? Uh, am I willing to kind of say, you know what, I'm going to cut back my salary so I can keep a staff member employed? Uh, would I be willing to do that? Uh, you know, what am I, what am I willing to do for these? My, these are my people. God has given me uh, them to serve. Uh, and there's much joy in it. And you know, so sometimes I think we allow ourselves to get distracted and kind of turn back in on ourselves. You know, in so many cases, that's what sin is. It's this incurvata say, uh, as, as um, the saying goes, uh, that we we kind of shut ourselves off. We wall ourselves up. Uh, and we can do that with possessions. We can do that um, by re- re- retreating uh into this private space instead of allowing ourselves simply to be open to, to the needs of the people. Well, I am grateful uh, for the piece. We have a chance to publish it. And certainly um, in my experience, uh, clergy are very committed um, to their vocations and, and your advice about picking up even in a modest way, Elmasa could actually help these help, uh, men renew their uh, the enthusiasm of their commitment to the priesthood. So I, I really, I really, I really commend this to to lay and of course clerical leaders. So thank you for your time and uh, God bless. My pleasure. God bless you and your ministry. Thank you.